0: Our sermon text this morning is from John 18 to 11 and when Jesus had spoken these words he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for each Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, Now the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. John chapter 18, if you haven't turned there yet,
1: go ahead and turn to John chapter 18. As you're turning there. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, your servant David has written that your law is perfect. Restoring of the soul. God, we ask that you would speak through your word, God, to restore our souls. Even if we we don't realize how dry and parched they are, God, revive our hearts, restore our souls. We have nowhere else to turn, but God, you have the words of life, and so it is to your word that we turn, and we ask that you would glorify yourself by sending your spirit to change our hearts, to let us see our sin and hate it, And cling to you. God, we ask that you would work that. In this time, let us delight in the beauty of your son. Who is in charge and rules and reigns over all things. God, we ask that he would rule and reign. Especially in our hearts and in our lives. Amen. Amen. Marcus Regulus was a Roman politician and he became the general of the Romans, of the Rome's first great navy. The Romans loved to fight on land, they didn't have much of a navy, but their main enemy early on, Carthage, had a fantastic, the hugest navy you'd ever seen. And so, So the Romans, they had to develop a way. How are they going to do this? So they they don't have any boats, so they make some boats. And what they do is put this big iron plank right out the front of it. So they would not try to avoid the other, the Carthaginian ships or anything like that. What they would do is just like a bunch of men, they would just go and sail right at it and impale the other ship with this iron plank. Then they had this spike, this claw that would drop down on top of it. And then the, ba- the ships would be tied together. And then the Romans would use their strength. The, you would have basically a land battle at sea. Well, that's what Regulus did. And everything worked great until Regulus was caught. And then he's carried off to Carthage. And Carthage, he gives his word to them. He's a Roman senator, he was. And he gives his word to them in Carthage. They want to send him to Rome. To settle the war. The war has been going on for now nine years. And they want the war to end. And they tell Regulus. Marcus Regulus. Fantastic name. They tell Regulus. If you're able to convince the Romans. To agree to these terms. You will be free. Just give us your word. That you will come back. If you can't convince them. And he does. He goes from Carthage, then sails to Rome. He didn't even want to come into the city because he said, I'm, I'm, I'm a prisoner of war. I'm not even, I'm not worthy of coming into Rome. But they bring him into the city and then they bring him back into the Senate. And he's, they're debating what they should do. Should they settle the war? Should they keep on fighting or not? And Marcus Regulus begins to speak and he tells them, these are the terms do not take them. No, for the sake of Rome, do not take these terms to end the war. Keep fighting. Do not give Rome away. And then to keep his word, he goes and returns back to Carthage. And as he is leaving his friends and his family began, they clung to him and saying, no, you must not go. And to all the historian writes, to all their appeals, he made but one answer. I have given my word of honor. I will return, for I cannot break it. And he goes back to Carthage, even Augustine regular notes in the horrific way in the city of God, the horrific way, Cicero writes about it as well, the horrific way that I will not describe to you right now, and how he died. He knew he would be giving his life to go back, and that's the beauty of it. Marcus Regulus didn't die. His life wasn't taken from him in that sense, but no, he gave his life for the sake of his countrymen. He gave his life for the sake of Rome. That's the same thing we see in our text here this morning, in John 18. Is that Christ in his life, it's not taken from him. No, throughout all of this, you see that Christ is, he's giving his life to drink the cup. So Christ's life was not taken from him. As if it was some horrible deed that now needs to be redeemed. And so we put this spin on it. No, that's not it. His life was given. Given for you. His blood was shed for you. Christ gave his life. It wasn't taken from him. So how are we going to see that in the text? All right, verses 1 through 3. You're going to see this human agency or human involvement through it all. Then verses 4 through 9, you're going to see Christ's sovereignty, which is a fancy way of saying how he rules and how he reigns over all things. So you're going to see human involvement, that God is not just orchestrating this, but he's using humans. After that, Christ's sovereignty, that he rules and reigns over everything, even what's said and how they react. And then finally, you're going to see the Father's cup in verses 10. And 11. So, with that in mind, let's go ahead and read the text here, verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. We've been slowly working our way through John for well, well, over a year now. And a third of this, of what we've carved, almost a third of what we've carved, has just happened in the last several hours. Chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and now we're into 18. All of these have happened in the upper room. So when, when it says in verse 1, or yeah, in verse 1 here it says, when Jesus has spoken all of these things, so he's talking about this upper room experience that they're having there. His high priestly prayer, promising that the Holy Spirit would come, telling them that the world is going to hate them, washing their feet even. And when Jesus had concluded all of these things, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. And you can see already what John's doing and the echoes of this battle of the kingdoms that is going on. The same path, the same brook that uh, David would have crossed when David Jesus is now betrayed by Judas. And when David was betrayed by his own son, Absalom, 1 Samuel 15, David gathered his men. And while all the country, Samuel writes, was weeping with a loud voice, all of the people passed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron. As all the people passed towards their way, towards the wilderness, Here's Christ, the true king, also being betrayed and crossing the the Kidron. Would have been a full moon, and the spring rains would have had this brook flowing quite nicely. And they're just kind of situated in your mind. They're about 200 yards now east of, of the Temple Mount, not far from where all of this has been happening. And as they cross over and then go into the garden, they're actually undoing the steps that they would have taken in on Palm Sunday. And sure enough, here it is here that they come, they come to a garden. Now the garden's in the east there, and at that time normally enclosed. And just see how John... Just a reminder, when we're reading our Bibles... Especially narrative, gospel narrative. Every word matters. You have to see what is the author including, what is he not including. So you're going to see that John doesn't include in this Jesus praying for hours. Weeping. Blood. Blood. Doesn't include that. Doesn't include Judas coming forward and betraying him with this kiss. No, John is orchestrating truthfully this event and he wants to draw something else out of it. So when you're reading the gospel, you have to read what is John actually saying? Not what does all the other authors say about this? What is John actually showing us? So John's intentionally telling you, ah, we're going back to a garden. Choice implies meaning. Remember how John has begun the gospel mirroring the account in Genesis. Moses, right in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John picks that up, pulls those words up. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's mirroring that right in the beginning. He's pulling your mind right back to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. And here now, he drops it in. We're in the garden. He could have said Gethsemane. He could have said anything else. But no, he wants you to see it as the garden. And so here we are now in the garden. The very place where sin is entered into the world. Where the first Adam has partaken of the fruit and judgment was given. As one of the commentators writes, where the curse was pronounced and the Redeemer was promised. Here in this garden that we have now, the second Adam, Christ. All of the preparation has been made. All of it's been made. And now you're turning the corner into the conflict. With the second Adam will enter into direct conflict with that old serpent. And so you have in these beginning movements of this garden encounter when Christ himself will begin to meet the whole assault of hell. In verse 2, now Judas, who betrayed him, how is your life going to be characterized? In one sentence. It reduces down to that. It really does. Go to 1 Kings, 2 Kings Chronicles, either you are a man of faith, a woman of faith, or you are not. Judas, his whole life is characterized in one sentence, and so were yours. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus would often meet there with his disciples. Judas, remember, he's been with Christ for now three years in this ministry. But he's, he's dismissed then. Satan entered into him and he's dismissed while they're there in the upper room. And it's likely then he left there, picks up some temple guards, picks up some uh, Roman guards there from Antonio Fortress, just to the northeast of the temple, all right in the same area. And likely, actually, not a lot of troops. is It's the Passover of a... a A religious and a nationalistic festival. So you don't want a bunch of Roman troops marching around in the middle of the night with their torches and lanterns. You just cause a riot needlessly. So probably not a lot of troops. But they're there. Likely go back to the upper room. They're not there. And Judas goes, Ah, I know where. Let's go to that garden. And they go... And here you see the man of prayer, Christ, and the man who's seeking power, Judas. And it comes forth with soldiers and lanterns and torches and weapons. And and the stage is set for for this cosmic battle. Zechariah writes about it. He says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. God, the Father's calling his sword to awake. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. The eternal Son declares the Lord of hosts. And it began in the garden, now it's going to continue in the garden. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head. And you shall bruise his heel. So in these hours of prayer that would have been there. We move from this calm, assured victory. You have throughout all of this ministry. Just assured victory. Happening. Miracle after miracle. Pressing back to the kingdom of darkness. You have this assured victory. And you leave that calmness and now you enter into the anguish of the contest when it all matters. This this will be you. This will be you as well. You have this assured victory? Absolutely, rightfully so. But you too will be in the throes of death before you know it, for hours, for days. You'll be tempted in ways you can't imagine. But just as God the Father has held on to the Messiah and carried him all through, even though the battle was great, so shall our Messiah our shepherd, hold on to us and carry us through, even when the darkness gets deep. So, in God's sovereign plan, He's using humans throughout all of this. And they're willfully, willingly doing anything and everything that the Father wills following the desires of their hearts of his Judas's desire to do this. Yet, God is directing every step that they are taking. And now you'll see explicitly, starting in verse 4 through 9, why Christ is laying down his life. God, John is showing you that, how Christ is laying down his life. Not that it was taken. Let, let's read these verses here. Verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, again, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Verse 7. So when he asked them again, "Whom do you seek?" and they said, "Jesus of Nazareth," Jesus answered, "I told you that I am He. So if you seek me, let these men go." This was to fill the word that He had spoken: "Of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one." It's beautiful, Jesus came forward what was happening in his mind when he came forward well okay when he came forward knowing all that would happen to him how easy it is for us to to shrink back our children shrink back when they know some consequences are coming as adults we shrink back too the reality of life sets in and we shrink back. We hide in drugs, pornography, whatever it is. We shrink back. We blame other people at work. I blame Adam all the time for things that happen here. <laughs> I'm <joking. laughs> But Christ, knowing all that would happen to him, knowing of the scourging that would happen, knowing of the crown of thorns that would be placed on his head, knowing them would be mocking him as king knowing that he would bear the cross, knowing that he would be crucified, flanked on his right and on his left by criminals, by robbers, knowing that he would drink the cup, knowing all of that, he came forward. Earlier, in John chapter 6, with the feeding of the 5,000, he feeds them and they want to make him king. They want to put a crown on his head, and he pulls back. He doesn't want anything to do with that. But now he has the father's cup placed right before him, and then he goes forward. Notice how subtly that, that John is, this is why it's beautiful to meditate on Scripture. Notice how subtly John is communicating all of this. Where do Judas and the soldiers and the temple guard, where do they go? They're depicted as going, they went there. So they just, they just go there. They're not going to Christ. They're, vaguely, they're just going there. But then Jesus is the one who steps forward and talks to them. Jesus is the one who then goes, steps forward, and initiates all of this. It's not them who speaks, but it's Christ who comes and speaks to them. Sure, they have the, the lanterns and the weapons and everything else, but he has. Complete control. His life is given. It's not taken. Whom do you seek? They ask. Or he asks them, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answers them. Hang away me. I am. I am he that he is added on. Just simply, I, I am. And recall that John, what he's been doing through this whole gospel, it has been a revelation, a starting from eternity past and slowly opening up the door to who Christ is. That he's eternally existed, that he was with God and that he is God, John says in chapter 1. He tells them, I am the bread of life. In John 6, right after again, right after feeding of the 5,000, he tells them with this discussion of manna, no, I am. Let the reader understand, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. In John 9, when Jesus heals a blind man, and he tells him, no, you, you might be able to see, but I am the light of the world. I'm the door to the sheep. How do you come into the fold and be amongst the sheep of God? that will be eternally kept through Christ. Well, who's the one that shepherds over these sheep? It's Christ, John 10. I'm the good shepherd. I will lay down my, my life. I will lay it down for the sheep and I will hold on to them. And no one, not no one will take them out of my hand. I am the resurrection and the life. He raise up Lazarus from the dead, as Adam was preaching. He raised up Lazarus from the dead. No, I, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He tells him in the upper room, and he tells him that I am the true vine. Apart from me, apart from Christ, you have no life Whatsoever. Now that the contest is underway, he removes all of the modifiers, all the specific ways, and he just gives it to them fully, just drinking right from the fire hose. Just gives it to him. I am. Recall, these are the very words when, when Moses is up on Mount Sinai, Mount Oreb, and he says, Whom shall I say sent me? Yahweh, God, is telling Moses to go back to free the people. Well, who shall I say sent me? The Lord's response is, I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So if you've ever doubted the divinity of Christ... Doubt no more. We worship a Messiah who is fully God. The fullness of God dwells in him. He is worth worshiping. He's not just a human. He was a good teacher where bad things happened. And again, later on, we try to spin the the narrative to make him seem like something. No, no, no. By his own admission, he said, I am fully God. Does Muhammad ever say that? No. Buddha ever say that? No. Nobody's ever claimed that. He claims to be fully God. And he proves it by taking our sin, taking death upon himself and then being raised from the dead. This is the Messiah you want to worship. So what's their response? Verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, showing that Jesus is, is giving his life, it's not being taken from him. He shows that they, they have no power over him, only but what they what, what he allows them to have. And their response is the only one that could be given. When God reveals himself again Mount, on Mount Sinai in Exodus 3, Moses hides his face because he was, quote, he was afraid to look at God. On Philippians 2, that we've preached through for Advent. We know that every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue, every knee will bow. That's what we see here. Completely undone. Or in Revelation 5, it says, When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before him. You pray and you ask for Christ to reveal Himself to you. Be prepared. I think it it will be with you when you receive a revelation of who Christ is. We think we'll be able to pray. We think we'll be able to stand. We even pray with our heads up pridefully. But our only hope is the blood of Christ. To save us from the terror of Christ when he returns. And then he asked them, again, who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. And he answers, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Fully God, in control of everything. Yet you see the shepherd's heart for his disciples. You want me, you can have me. I'm orchestrating all of this. Let these men go. And even this was to fulfill his own prayer that he had just prayed. John 17, verse 12. So let's go to these last verses. You're going to see that Christ has been in control over all things. Now you're going to see how he drinks the father's cup. Verses 10 and 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. (laughs) Such a Peter thing. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? We're going to talk about Peter more next week, so just just encapsulate verse 10, and then we'll move on through the rest of it. So Peter, he's... Uh, Josephus, okay, we'll, we'll mention this. Josephus, book three of the Jewish war, he mentions that Peter, um, he's from Galilee. Josephus mentions that he's been from Galilee. That's kind of the backwoods, you know, the chat fields of, uh, of the area. And um, I don't know if anyone's here. I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. And... Uh, um, so they would walk around, they would have the, the sword, and they'd be armed, and they would carry it in their upper garment. So Peter pulls this out, and it's not like this fisherman's hook, where he's, you know a knife where he's just flicking off. His. No, Peter's swinging, whoosh, trying to take the dude's head off. He goes like this, cuts his ear off. So that's basically what's happening here in verse 10. We're going to peek up with Peter and his denials next week. Back to Christ laying down his life. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into a sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? See Christ's willingness. The Father who gave it the cup of the Father gave the cup. Christ, shall I not drink it? He's wanting to do it. He's desiring to do it. Nothing's going to get him in His way. Even if you want to fight for me to be free. No, Peter, I don't want to do that. I want to drink this cup of wrath. To redeem my people. To taste death. Not for himself. But for every one of his sheep. You guys. If you're in Christ. And he didn't sip the cup and put it down. He drank all of it. Even to the bitter dregs at the end. And thus he disarms death. By bearing its shaft. Into his own heart. As Isaac Watts Beautifully puts it, he quenched the Father's flaming sword with his own vital blood. Thus you have Christ willingly doing this for you. You are right to think that you are loved, but you have no idea, no idea how much your Messiah loves you. So John has made this very clear, that Christ's life is given, it's not taken. You see this, that he comes forward knowing all that would happen to them. He steps to them, he speaks to them. It's not them speaking to him first, but he's even in control, even of that. And then even in the context of all this, he declares himself, this I am statement, that he is Yahweh, that he is the Lord over all. So you might think that as this is happening, that this this cross is just some, some vortex that is kind of sucking Christ in, and then Christ is fighting it, and then just finally lets go and then gets sucked into this. No, that's not it at all. The father puts the cup down, he walks up to the table, he grabs the cup by himself, and he begins drinking all of it. And this isn't new to me, but so in the context, they had just finished the Passover meal in which they have four different cups. They have the cup of sanctification, that's the first one, the one of deliverance and judgment, then the, the third one, the third self, which is a cup of redemption, which is one Lord instituted, Lord's Supper would be doing that one, then the halal cup in which they sing all these psalms. The cup here, it shows blessing and judgment, wrath and redemption. It shows it all in one. It's all pictured right there in the cup. And Christ is coming and he's drinking this cup of, of judgment so that we can partake in the cup of redemption. As Paul calls it, the cup of blessing that we are now able to partake of. The cup of redemption that could be poured out for salvation over all people. This is what Christ has done for you by coming forward. And this is your Messiah that we worship, who has given his life for you. So, what do we do? Number one, delight in the deity of Christ. Delight in the deity of Christ. When I was asked, what should I do? What should I do? Okay, this is true. What should I do? Well, sometimes the proper response is simply to be in awe of who Christ is. That's more than enough to prayerfully delight in the deity of Christ. So when you contemplate the cross, yes, we see his human death. Yes, on the cross, we see all of our sins being placed upon him there. Do not forget, as we come and move into this chapters about the cross, to delight in the deity of Christ that is fully there, who purposefully, intentionally grabs the Father's cup and drinks it. Number two... Number one, delight in the deed of Christ. Number two: purposefully give your own life. So Christ is willing and joyfully gives his life for what he sees the Fathers doing for him. Shall we not do the same? When the God the Father brings something in your life, shall you not joyfully give your life to it? God has, has placed, for many of you, motherhood, into your life. Shall you not drink this cup joyfully? Are you going to complain about it? Absolutely not. God the Father has placed singleness into your life. Shall you not drink this cup? Shall you not give your life to it? We can't complain. No. Shall we not drink this cup the Father has given us? Men, as we go to work, Work industriously hard. Miss things at home. Don't feel guilty. Shall you not drink this cup that God the Father has given to you? Absolutely. Intentionally give your life to what the Father has placed before you. All right. So delight in the deity of Christ. Give your life from what the Father has placed before you. And finally, you better start falling down now. You better start falling down now. The slightest, Again, the slightest revelation of who Christ is, these soldiers, men trained for war, trained for killing and fighting, are completely undone. They step back, even that's not enough, and then they fall down. Let me give you another picture of what it will look like upon the revelation of Christ. John writes it this way in his revelation. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the, day, for the great day of wrath has come. And who can stand? If you're not in Christ, fall now before him. Trust in him. For he will come and reveal himself, either as the good shepherd or as the wrathful one, pouring out the cup of judgment that he has not drunk for you. And you will drink it. Fall down now before him. So let's pay pay homage to the Messiah, who who is in control of all things. Let us delight in his divinity and let us worship our Messiah who gave his own life and drank the cup of judgment so that we might partake in the cup of blessing. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we have hearts that are still Walking in rebellion against you. But God, we know that your son has come. And given his life for us. Let us delight in that, God. If we feel distant from you. If we know that we are walking in rebellion against you. God, let us. Let us come undone now. Work in our hearts, God. The sin that we so carefully hide from other people. Convict us of that, God. And let us delight As we come forward to partake in this cup of blessing through communion. God let us delight in all that your son is. In all that he has done for us. That he has drank from the cup of judgment. So that we might delight in the cup of blessing. And all God's people said, Amen.